Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. So I gave you a little uh, teaser last week that Stephen is going to be coming up. I'm going to invite Stephen up. We've been, uh, this fall, you can clap for him. We've been this fall in a series that we just simply called Jesus. We wanted to get really creative with the name. Um, so we're just calling it Jesus. We want to ex- experience what it was like for people who had encounters with Jesus. Say, what, what did that encounter look like? What did Jesus, who were these people that he met? What did he say to them? How did he approach them? Like Crystal said earlier, like Jesus was often moved with compassion. There are also times when he encountered like religious leaders that he wasn't, I think compassion was a secondary thing. It's always there, but he's got a sharper edge, right? And so often Jesus encounters people and they respond to him. Some of them uh, fall and they're made new by him. Some of them end up rejecting him and pushing him away. But there's always a response and we want to look at those encounters and we want to say, how, how could we encounter you, Jesus, through that? What could we see of you, and how could we encounter you today? So Stephen is a dude who I have had just a growing respect and admiration for, uh, super easy to like, right? If you've spent any time around Stephen, you know he's a guy who's a storyteller. You know that he's... Um, He's a passionate guy. He loves information. He loves history. He loves uh, stories. Um, and um, if you get him going, yeah, no, yeah, there's a ton of excitement and energy in the room. Yeah, right? you will be here till tomorrow. Right? And, and he can also dance if, yeah. if you haven't yes. seen it. Yeah. Badly, but excitedly. Okay? Um, Everyone's a critic. <laughs> oh. Thank you. So I, I asked Stephen if he would come up and uh, if he would get into the shepherd's encounter with Jesus. The shepherds encounter the angels and the shepherds then uh, are led to the encounter with Jesus. I asked if Stephen would get into that passage, study that, make some observations, and then if he would be willing to share those with the church uh, this morning. And he said yes. Well, one of the things that you said to me this morning, Stephen, was that uh, you have a theater background, mm-hmm. I've known that, but uh, you talked about this morning being uh, a little bit different than theater. So can you share just a little bit about that, uh, the difference between like this morning and your time in theater? Well, you know, this is interesting because you're always playing someone. You know, you're always playing someone else, you know. And even if you look at most of the stand-ups, comics in the world, they generally have a character because they're trying to separate who they are from who they are on stage, if you see what I mean. So there's always this separation between you and who you are because they're essentially not seeing you, they're seeing whatever part you play. And the more drastic or crazy you can be, you know, the, the, you know, the better it is sometimes, you know. So the more uh, strange accents you do or strange faces, you know. Nobody ever saw the real Charlie Chaplin. You know, and in fact, when he started talking in movies, nobody wanted to see him because you know? <laughs> they were used to this over the top kind of thing. And then it turned out when he talked, he was awful. You know, <laughs> it's true. You know, his career dropped like a stone. So it's it's hard when I think I think when people see who we really are, it's sometimes hard and sometimes difficult. And we all put up masks and put up things and stuff like that um, to hide who we are from the world. You know. 
and then suddenly you're out in front of everyone and there's not really any place to hide, you know? I'm a big guy, I can't hide behind uh, any of this stuff, you know? Uh, although most of the youth find that area very easy to hide behind, you know? Um, the amount of times I've cleared that area out on a Thursday night, you know, uh, is, there's a lot of time. <laughs> so that, that one of the major differences, if you're hearing him, saying, like in theater, you get to put on a character, you get to put on a mask, mm -hmm. you get to put mm -hmm. on somebody, and people fall in love with your character, yeah. right? It's a very attractive character mm -hmm. often. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're up here, you don't get to be a character. You need to be you. I mean, mm -hmm. actually, a lot of people who do church and do religion and mm -hmm. stuff, they are a character, right? Mm -hmm. And it's something to take off our mask. And w when Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, he called them actors, right? Because they had a mask on and they were presenting a self that they thought was the most attractive. And he's like, that's an invitation and a challenge to take off the mask. So I love your vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I, I pray that you're blessed by it. And I'm praying that... Uh, the church is blessed by it. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other things that that I told him today was this isn't a theater production, right? He's not on a stage where we're going to say boo or yay, depending <laughs> on performance. He's with family. Mm -hmm. He's with family who want to hear from him, mm -hmm. don't want the character, want him, mm -hmm. right? So I, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Before we get into mm -hmm. shepherds and observations, yeah. I wonder if you'd give us like a, a two-minute a two-minute history of Stephen. Where do you, where do you come from? What's mm -hmm. your family background? Um, mm -hmm. And how, how did you get to be with us yeah. today? So two minutes for me is generally 15 minutes for everyone else. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, no, I come from, uh, I, I was born in a town in the north of England, which most people haven't heard of, which is a place called uh, Scunthorpe. But you actually, if you've ever been on a train, uh, a train pretty much anywhere in the world, the chances are you will have actually been on something that we make, because we make, in my hometown, they make railways. They make uh, the steel that goes into railroads, and it's some of the best steel in the world. There's also our steels in, like, uh, uh, the big stadiums, a lot of big stadiums. We're one of the few people outside of uh, companies outside of America that American companies will use, um, and we've, we've been making that for, like, 100 years. So it's this, I come from a small northern industrial town that's known for one thing, and not necessarily a whole lot else, you know. Um, uh, my parents moved there because uh, my dad ended up working on the steelworks for 37 years. He was sponsored through university. I ended up growing up in a very industrial city when my parents came from a city that was like a thousand years old, which was a bit of a culture shock for them. They came from Lincoln, you know, nice cathedral, very leafy place, and my hometown really isn't that, you know. The town is actually the same size as the steelworks. The steelworks is actually the size of the town. You know, it's the sort of place where people don't really get out of. You know, and I grew up with a, you know, I grew up with, I, I like to say maybe out of, if we, out of all the schools in the town together, if we graduate a class of 2,000 people, probably out of all the schools, uh, classes in town, you're probably talking only 200 of them will go to college. You know, so you may be talking only 150 people graduate, and a lot of people are on state benefits, a lot of people, there's a lot of teenage mothers, you know, by the time I was finishing school, there's a lot of um, uh, girls that I was at school with were pregnant. There's not a lot of ways out. So you have, they have children to give them somebody to love and be with. Um, there's a lot of alcoholism. There's a lot of drug addiction. It's a lovely place, but there's a lot of problems with it. You know, um, and it's, it's, it, it, most people in my home country don't know where it is, but it's one of these places like Cleveland. 
you know, where everyone's like, oh yeah, Cleveland's terrible or whatever, you know, it's like Scunthorpe's terrible. You don't know where it is, you've never been there, but you know it's terrible, you know? So that's where I'm from and um, I'm, but I have um, Asperger's, um, which is a form of autism. And that wasn't recognized when I was young, when I was a child. Um, uh, at a time when most of the teachers I had actually were teachers that had grown up in, the, had been trained in the 50s, which basically meant their way of teaching was, you're going to conform to everyone else. And I didn't conform. So, you know, I had teachers screaming at me that I needed a nanny. I had like, you know, all sorts of things. <laughs> it didn't go well at all. And I was bullied for most of my school life, you know, because not because not because there was anything necessarily wrong with me. It was the craziest thing. People actually liked me, but I, I was there as a target. It was very, very easy to, to do that. Um, and so that's where I grew up. Um, I went to university uh, um, when I was 18 and dropped out. I had a nervous breakdown because uh, everything was a little bit too much. Um, and then I ended up working in like factories in my hometown you know, sometimes only getting two days a weekend because there wasn't a lot of work um, for a long time. And then I met my wife, Kelly, online. Um, yeah. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Uh, and uh, who is from Minnesota, um, which we won't hold that against her, <laughs> even though they lost yesterday to Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> at least it wasn't Cleveland. No, she's not from Cleveland. Uh, she's, she's from the place they make the Red Wing shoes. Um, uh, so, I moved here in September 2015, um, and I've been here ever since. I sometimes teach Sunday school here. Um, uh, I basically um, engage in many debates with the students at student ministry, um, and occasionally I beat Finn Allsweet up because he deserves it. <laughs> and he needs to learn to have a better attitude. <laughs> And I'm twice the size of him, so one day he's going to get flattened. Not deliberately, I'll just fall on him. It's true. Flat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, let's jump into shepherds. Yeah. Um, uh, would you read... Would you read Luke 2, verses 1 through 20? It gives us a good setup. It's more than just the shepherds. It uh, takes us back to what's going on uh, in, the, in the days that lead up to Jesus' birth. Um, the census in Bethlehem and, uh, you know, Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem. And then it takes us to the shepherds. So we're going to kind of back out and read some of the, the context of the story and then focus in on the shepherds. So Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. At the time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had, got, had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there... The time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. 
I bring you good news that will, be great, will bring great joy to all people. The Saviour, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angels said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. For it was just as the angel had told them. All right, as we jump in, uh, the first question that we've been trying to uh, answer in the Jesus uh, series here is like, what do you see? What observations can you make? So Stephen, as you dug in here, can you share with us some of the observations? I love it. Some of the observations that you make of the shepherds. What do you see um, through your eyes? What stands out to you? It's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, Shannon picked the, uh, the British guy to talk about hill farming and sheeps. Um, <laughs> Because there's not a lot of sheep necessary in America. There's not a lot of sheep farming necessarily goes on. But where I'm from, there's a lot of sheep. You know, there's a lot of sheep farming in various areas near where I grew up. And, you know, so I kind of know a little bit about, um, we have study at a lot of school, you know. And, you know, we, you could go on trips to watch them lambing the sheep when they, they actually, you know, they feed the lambs. And, you know, kids go out there and they, so there's a lot of shepherd, sheep farmers around. And so the interesting thing about sheep farming that I noticed is it's not something that can, it's not like uh, you go down to Texas or wherever and you've got like these long plains and there's herds of beef cattle. This is a, this is a, a kind of a, a method of farming where it takes place with this, these kind of, uh, it's called a V-shaped valley. So it's a very narrow hit, uh, valley up in the hills. And the hills aren't necessarily massive, but they're very rocky and they're very kind of like, it's like that, and that's how you do hill farming. It's in this kind of area. And I studied history at university, and when you look at his, um, when you look at history, the placement of towns and stuff is based on what resources and what you're going to do there. And so, one of the interesting things about Bethlehem and shepherds is they're not going to be easily reachable. This is a very lonely and isolated place. So these guys, we often look at Bethlehem and, you know, in, in, in TV and film versions of um, kind of the nativity and it's all, you know, they always get there and it's like this, this town that's got like 60,000 people in and there's all like people are trying to get into different places to, you know, find a place for the night. It's all like, it's all buzzing and everything like that. And it probably was, but there probably wasn't that many people there, you know, it's not a very big place. And so as I was looking at it, I realized, this is a place in the middle of nowhere, like my hometown. It's not a place that anyone's going unless they have to get, go, go there, you know? You look at Jerusalem, probably everyone wants to go to Jerusalem. Everyone's going there at least once in their life, you know, or whatever, or once a year to sacrifice. But they ain't going to Bethlehem because Bethlehem's got nothing there. Bethlehem's your ultimate dead end. You know, it's probably high in the hill country. It's just a bunch of people farming sheep. If you look throughout the Bible, every time we talk about Bethlehem, with the exception of, I think, Boaz in the book of Ruth, it's not 
farming, it's not crop farming they're talking about, it's sheep, you know. David is a shepherd there, you know. It's, it's, we have shepherds here. It's not, it's not particularly a kind of buzzing metropolis. Um, and so the shepherds really aren't, they're kind of dropouts. Because the point is, if you, in Jewish society at the time, most males studied to, they were studying the Torah and the books of the law from a young age. And, you know, we have all these schools that they go through to try, at certain ages, to try and become the student of, like, a rabbi or whatever. And the thing is, shepherds are not in front of anyone. You don't go to school wanting to be a shepherd at this time. You don't want to be a shepherd. Oh, yes, I'd really like to be a shepherd and sleep out in the fields at night, you know? It's, it's, it's not really something you want to do. So the thing is, these guys, essentially, they work in the night shift, you know? One of the interesting things about sheep farming is that in, it's, we know when um, Jesus was born, which isn't at Christmas time, unfortunately, um, because in summer, it, sorry, in winter, you take the sheep close to the town. And you probably actually sleep in town because they're actually in a defined pasture. But during summer, they're out in the hills and you're sleeping with them. So these guys, not only are they living in the middle of nowhere, they're away from their town in the middle of nowhere and they're probably out in the field somewhere. Which probably we think, oh yeah, nice field, nice meadow. No, they're probably halfway up a, a hill, you know. Probably in some rocky place trying to stay warm, you know, with whatever they've got with them. These guys are the nobodies. These guys are the dropouts. These guys are the guys who didn't make the schools of, of you know, to get to become the student of a rabbi. You know, they're the opposite of Paul the Apostle and the Pharisees. These are the guys that, you know, you know, if we're talking like some kind of 1990s teen film, you know, these are kind of like the guys that the jocks and the cheerleaders hate, you know? Gosh, you smell. You're, you're dirty. Your face is dirty, you know? One of the lines that you shared yeah. with me when we got together for coffee, yeah. you said, most likely going nowhere, AD3. Yeah, yeah. that's what like would be in their, their yearbook. school yeah. prize. Yeah. You just... And going anywhere. Yeah, uh, I'm going to be back in 20 years, and you're not going to be anywhere, you know? Most likely not to succeed, 83, you know? But the thing is, what's interesting is, throughout the Bible, God comes to shepherds. He doesn't come to kind of often kings or princes or whatever. One of the interesting things is that David was a shepherd long before he was a king, you know? And cr crazily enough, Moses starts off as a prince and God doesn't talk to him until he's finally a shepherd when he's 80, you know? You know, imagine him at 40, you know, strapping guy, you know, I can take on the world, you know? And then when he's 80, it's like, oh, yes, yes, no, no, send somebody else. I, I'm just here with my sheep, you know, I like the, uh, you know? So the interesting thing is God comes to us where we are in the midst of where we are. And the interesting thing is, God breaks in to their space in that moment. You know, they are literally sat there trying to get to sleep, and then suddenly, boom, everything's lit up. There's angels in the sky. There's one angel, and then there's multiple angels. And then not only does God send angels to announce that the, uh, the Messiah's been born, he literally gives them directions, you know, he gives them kind of first century sat nav to exactly where these guys are, that Jesus is. Which is really interesting because then I started looking at, it's interesting, this is only in Luke 2. It's not in the other three Gospels. And then I went and looked and I realized the Magi are only in Matthew 2. 
And the, the interesting thing about the Magi is they come to Jerusalem to ask where the king of the Jews is. They have to come and ask where the king of the Jews has been born. And Herod doesn't know where the king's been born. In fact, Herod doesn't even know where the Messiah is supposed to be born. He has to go get the teachers of the law, you know, who come along and say, oh, Bethlehem Ephrata, you know, though you are small in, amongst the people of Israel. They don't know where it is. And that really started me thinking because the astrologers, the magi, these wise men would have spent most of their life studying this stuff, studying all sorts of things. And the teachers of the Jewish law would have spent all the time studying things. You know, and I don't know if anyone's watched The Crown that's on Netflix with Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth had to study all this stuff about diplomacy, you know. So you would think Herod had been told would have to have studied all this stuff. Training to be the king would have to study all this Jewish kind of whatever. He doesn't know. No, none of them know they've studied all this stuff and they're two years late. You know, all, and sometimes we build that into, our, you know, we kind of glorify education and we glorify intellect and we glorify knowledge even within the church and then we come to this and it's like the smart people ha spend two years because they've got to go through their intellect and they've got to search this book and this old thing and all this kind of stuff and Jesus comes to a bunch of probably illiterate to a degree um, men in a field in the middle of nowhere it might be cold out but they probably stink they've spent most of their life with their sheep and he gives them directions to exactly where it is. They don't have to search. And, you know, God comes to us in the midst of where we are, in the midst of who we are, you know. And, you know, that's what I started to see. I started to see that, you know, like God breaks into their life, not because of who they are. You know, and you, you look at Herod, you look at the, uh, the Magi, you look at a bunch of the other people, you look at the Pharisees later on in Jesus' life, they miss everything because they've got all this stuff that they've learned that Jesus goes against. Whereas all the broken, messed up dudes, you know, let's face it, Peter makes mistakes all the time, you know, they are open because they haven't got all this stuff in the way. Yeah, so that's what I started to realize. Yeah, so this, I mean, I just, that's a, such an important part that you said. Like, God comes to us where we are, mm -hmm. that uh, he came to the shepherds. He came to who people thought were nobodies, yeah. and God says, I'm coming to you guys. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you directions. People are going to search it out. I'm telling you exactly where yeah, yeah, you yeah. need to go. Like, God comes to us where we are. So you have a, you have a personal connection mm -hmm. here. Yeah, yeah. Why does this feel personal to you? I, you know, I think I am a um, university dropout basically, uh, my first year at university. Partially, I think, because I had kind of undiagnosed Asperger's and various other things. Um, it was a little bit of a disaster my first couple of years at university, and I had a, bit, I had a breakdown. I ended up dropping out of university and ending up um, uh, back home. And the interesting thing was there were a lot of people that I knew in my youth group at the time that were kind of, they were, they were, couple of years younger than me and they were going off to Bible colleges and they were going off to stuff like that and and things of that nature and we can be really as a church in a ch the western church as a whole we can be really really bad at basically getting very excited by people who seem to have it all together particularly when it means young people or whatever so you see I come back from university and I'm all broken and messed up and everything like that um, and it's like, well, you know, don't you have a five-year plan for your life? Don't you have a 10-year plan for your life? 
you know, haven't you, you know, don't you, don't you know where you're going to do it? Now, when you are a 22-year-old guy and there's a 16-year-old girl who thinks she can, not that it's about gender or anything, but she's 16, she hadn't been through a lot of life, and she's saying to you, where do you see yourself in five years, 10 years? And you're just like, I'm sorry, my dear, but you don't have a grid to talk to me about this. You haven't been through that life or whatever. But we think that. We think that a lot of times that we can talk to other people and say, oh, yeah, God's obviously not working in your life because you're messed up. You're broken. You're damaged. Oh, you know, I wouldn't let that happen kind of thing. God, and we start talking as if God only is active in your life if your life's sorted. So we start acting like God wants you to have a career. So if you go to university and you get first, you know, you get a first class honors degree and you get this perfect job and you do all this, then God is obviously active in your life, you know. We make the mistake sometimes of glorifying marriage so much. You know, we, oh yeah, you got married as if like being married is a part of your effort, you know. It's a part of something that you didn't. It's like, no, God, God gifted you someone. You know, but we act as if it's a part of effort. And so we look at people who are married and I've known leaders who look at people who are married and the va I've actually been in a, in a car and realizing that my words meant less than another guy, even though I'd been Christian for many, many years and this guy had only been a Christian in about six months, his words meant more because he was married with a kid. So obviously God's working in your life. Because your life's all together, because it's not broken, because it's not messed up. And the thing is with these guys is people must have said, yeah, God's not moving in your life. God's not active in your life. Go over there where you're not going to give any trouble and stay with the sheep because you can't be trusted with that. So when I was, when I was like 18, we had a large youth group. And so I got to 18 and, you know, everyone was becoming youth leaders apart from me because I'm basically messed up. There's something wrong with you, so stay over there. You can come to youth group, but stay over there and don't talk to any of the young people, you know? And we had situations where we had a couple of, uh, this is when I was growing up, a couple of youth leaders who really, youth soul group leaders, who really were not suitable, who did some pretty bad things. You know, it should have been spotted straight away. But, you know, and it, so that's the thing. It's like, you're broken, stay over there, be quiet, and don't make a noise. You know, because you're not, you, there's something wrong with you. You know, has anyone ever noticed you sometimes go into church and it's like, a person comes up and says, how are you? And you tell them how you are. And they kind of look at you and say, and you can see their face drop. And it's like, I didn't want to know how you are. I'm making pleasantries. You know what I mean? You know, it's like, I want you to say, how are you? Oh, God is great. Oh, amen. You know, I, I had a great week this week, you know? And you say, well, you know, this person died and, you know, I really haven't been doing well with my sanity this week and, you know, I'm not sure where the job's going to come from the next day, you know, and you've got two days working and they're like, you know, and I had a friend who was from Yorkshire, so we talked like this and he's all like, mate, mate, people don't want to know how you are. I said, then why do they ask me how you are? You know, and then I realized I've got autism. You know, I can't read subtext. You ask me how I am, I'm going to tell you how I am because I have no way of working on anything else. But people don't want to hear that, you know? And so that's what I start realizing, you know, and we can, we can turn the church into something where we want people to be perfect, where it's competition. It's, it's almost like academia, you know? And if you fail or if you're broken or if you're messed up or if you're too loud or if you're whatever, you 
you know, no, you, it, it's not enough. And you see, it's almost like you start feeling like you need to deserve God and what God has in store for you. You know, and it's almost like if I put all these things together, if I make myself better and I somehow do enough, you know, the truth is it's, I'm, I'm overweight. You know, a lot of people, you know, there's not necessarily a lot of overweight preachers out there. You know, there's not a lot of overweight leaders necessarily because people are probably there saying, oh, God's obviously not in your life because you put on weight. No, like, I just like burgers. It doesn't mean like, you know. That's my sin, if you know, I struggle with that, you know? Uh, so I always felt I needed to deserve stuff. I always felt that I was undeserving. But here's the interesting thing. God comes in the midst. These guys didn't deserve anything, and they knew they didn't deserve something. Sometimes the mistake is we think we deserve stuff, and we come to God thinking we deserve stuff, and we, we don't. But I deserve stuff just as much as anyone else, you know? One of the things that you said that really struck me, mm-hmm. uh, you said the parable of the yeah. talents feels bad mm-hmm. to those who think they have no yeah. talents. Mm-hmm. You know, or those, I would uh, yeah. come off of your story and say mm-hmm. those who are constantly being told yeah. they have yeah. no yeah. talents. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. You know, I've heard the parable of the talents being preached as if to say, um, so God's going to come back and if you haven't done the best with what you've got to advance the kingdom of God then God's not going to be happy with you. Now, the thing is, that's great if you are a worship leader, you know? Like, particularly in the late 90s, early 2000s, if you were a youth worship leader it's, or a young worship leader, it's almost like, I can do nothing wrong. Nobody's ever going to tell me anything. You know, like, because I can play an instrument, therefore God's obviously in my life. You know, no. I'm sorry, but that's like, that is something that hurts, you know? Oh, so you can't play guitar, or you can't, you can't speak very well, or you've got crippling shyness, so you don't want to teach, or you don't necessarily stand up in, in church and, and go, you know, the complete full-on, like, you know, Pentecostal pogo, jumping up and down, your hands in the air. If you're a quiet person sitting down, it's almost like, well, you know, there's a story I remember hearing about um, uh, the worship leader, Matt Redman, and... He was moving on from Soul Survivor Church or something, and Mike Pilvacci, the leader, says, who should be the worship leader after you? And he said, that guy. And Mike Pilvacci's like, that guy can't play an instrument, he can't sing, and he can't do anything like that. He says, yeah, but he's the guy who's actually doing it and doesn't care about anyone around him. And the thing is, we act as if it's like, you know, there's a thing that people say, yeah, God wants you to give your time, talent, and treasure. And there was definitely a point in my life where I thought, I knew I didn't have any time because I was walking to work and I couldn't drive. You know, so, you know, 45 minutes, you know, hour and a half each day was taken walking backwards and forwards from work. You know, I had no talent because my talent wasn't obvious, you know, and although I'm good, I serve in the kids' ministry and and do stuff here, I was never allowed near that because they thought that, you know, if they allowed me near kids, then it was all going to go wrong. The kids were all going to grow up like me or something. I don't know. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't have any treasure. I didn't think I had anything to give. So if you keep saying, yeah, um, the, the unfaithful servant who didn't multiply his gift and just put in the ground, it can make us feel like nothing. And we've got to be careful. That we, we can end up doing that too easily in the church. We can glorify so much 
people who have some kind of talent that's obvious or some people who have some sort of thing that's obvious. And, you know, there's a lot of people who've been hurt by that in church and in things like that. And, you know, I just, yeah, it's just, it, it's just something that gets me that, you know? It so hurt that, me. That know? God shows up to people who have a reputation as nobodies yeah. in the shepherds, mm-hmm. that you weave in your own mm-hmm. kind of story of feeling like you have mm-hmm. something to offer, but that is not recognized, yeah, and yeah. so you even start to doubt that. Yeah. But that God God showed up to mm-hmm. the shepherds. What do you see about God and his character, mm-hmm. and what do you see about faith captured in all of that? Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing is when we come into all this kind of trying to be perfect and trying to be everything like that, and when we, you know, we can end up like looking at each other and saying, are you reading this book? Have you read this author? Because, you know, it's, it, it comes down to, you know, how much John C. Maxwell you've read or how much Joyce Meyer you've read. How many Joyce Meyer preachers have you seen on TV? You know, how much of this? How much are you listening to these great teachers? Or how much are you reading this guy? Or how much are you reading that guy? And we work it and we work it and we work it and we turn it into effort. We turn it into legalism without even thinking it's legalism. You know, and we get to a point of thinking, God should return what we're doing because we've worked at it, as if faith was something to do with us. And faith isn't anything to do with us. It's got nothing to do with you, you know, or me. Faith doesn't come from anything we did, you know. It never was our idea, you know. We act like it's our idea. Well, you know, I've worked with this God, you know. You know, I was born in a Christian family and I've done this, that, and the other, you know. And I mean, if you, in Roman Catholicism, it's all like you've got to tick off all these things. And we, we do that. You know, we might not be Catholics, but we do that in a different way in Protestantism. And I love, I've always loved the Silver Chair, uh, which is the sixth book in the Narnian series. Uh, and C.S. Lewis, I love some of the stuff he says. Um, and there's a scene where uh, one of the girls ends up in Narnia and she, she makes a mistake and the guy she's with isn't there to help her with kind of stuff and she meets Aslan for the first time and she's freaked out because nobody tells her who Aslan is and she wants to drink from a stream and uh, she wants Aslan to go away because Aslan's there and she's like uh, if you're thirsty thirsty drink and she's like go away you know it's like I'm not going away you know it's like well I'll go to another stream there is no other stream and sometimes we can be like that with God um, and she ends up drinking and you know it's great and then he says you you know you messed up and now you're you're the friend's not with you to help you with the task that I called you into Narnia for. And the character Jill says, you didn't call us into Narnia. No, we didn't come to Narnia because somebody called us into Narnia. We asked to come, you know. We wanted to come. And Aslan says, you wouldn't have been calling if I wasn't first calling you. And sometimes we forget that. We only ended up in faith because God first called us. If we forget that, that at one point in our life we were shepherds out on a hillside, you know, like literally smelling and stinking of whatever we've done and whatever mistakes we've made. If we ever forget that, we're in a bad place because faith has become about ourselves and not about God. You know, it's not about anything we have ever done, any book you've ever read, you know. You can have read The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis and got through all of John Milton's Paradise Lost, you know, and read every single book that, I don't know, Joel Osteen's ever done, you know, and your life can be the life you want, you know, and you have the perma-smile and a perfect, you know, thing. And faith would still not be your idea. It still would all be about God, you know. 
Mother Teresa said uh, it's all about Jesus, you know. And I remember talking about not deserving things. You know, uh, uh, in discipleship group the other month, actually about teaching here and saying, I don't really deserve to do this. And Joe, Joe Marks uh, actually said to me, well, you kind of need to get over that. <laughs> Which for me, when I was like, like 18, 19, 20, every time I brought anything to anyone, like, oh, you know, my life's a mess. Yeah, mate, dude. I actually had a friend who every answer to everything was just get over it, you know. <laughs> um, and... I was thinking of it, and I ended up reading a book by Andrew Peterson, who's a Christian uh, singer. You know, some of you probably listened to him. But he, was reading, he wrote a book recently about creativity and the creative process. And he said, everything you do as an artist, it doesn't do change anything about who you basically are. And who you basically are is beloved. You know, so no matter how much you work at anything, whatever you do, you know, it's never going to change the fact that you are beloved of God. You know, and we act as if we're working to be beloved. But God, it's the hardest thing in our Christian walk is that God entered and said we are beloved before anything else. Later on in, the, in actually Luke 2, you have this situation with, um, they actually have, they bring um, their baby Jesus into the temple and to get circumcised. And the guy that actually gets to give the blessing over Jesus is this old guy, Simeon, who's basically, as far as we can tell, has been sat there forever waiting for the Messiah because he's been told by God the Messiah is coming. How many times do you think he'd been told, yeah, you, you're not doing this, you need to go and do this? But he believed that God would speak through him. You go through the beginning of Luke, everyone's messed up in some way, you know? Zechariah and Elizabeth are past the age where they can have children. Mary's probably a 14-year-old you know, probably about 14 years old, virgin in a no-name town in the north of Galilee. You know, Joseph is a, a carpenter. He's probably getting mocked because he's actually carrying on a relationship with a woman who everyone says, well, she's not pure, you know, because she's showing. It actually says she's starting to show. So when he leaves Nazareth, everyone, you know, I often think when you read later on, people say, isn't this uh, J Jesus, the son of the carpenter, actually saying, no, isn't this Jesus, Mary's bastard, you know? Because that's what he grew up in. And we can't do anything. Jesus chooses to come in the midst of our life. And when he starts calling the disciples, he doesn't call them in perfection. He calls them in, in the middle of their day, in the middle of their work day. He finds Matthew in his tax collector's booth. He finds Peter and Andrew and everyone by the nets, by the seashore. He finds them in the midst of everything that's wrong. He walks up to these people in the midst of who they are. He finds the Samaritan woman sitting by a well in Samaria, a place that he, as a good Jewish guy, should never have been. He goes and finds her. And so... We are beloved. And it's interesting that he actually, this is the town of Bethlehem. And that's the town of David. And, da you know, the interesting thing is David, my brother's middle name's David. Um, and the interesting thing about David is it means beloved. You know, the ki greatest king probably the Israelites ever had, and you think his name would mean probably strong, mighty, you know, manly guy. No, David means beloved. And Jesus and God says, David is a man after God's own heart. So you can never do anything to make yourself more loved than you already are. Yet we spend all our life trying to do it because we want to be better. Say that again. What? <laughs> I, 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 
the exact thing. <laughs> um, I want people to hear that. What you, you can just never said. be. You can never be better than you are. You know, you can never make yourself better in God's eyes than you already are. God made you in His image, so His love for you is defined on who God is. It's not defined on who you are. It's defined on the fact that He loved you. You know, him dying on the cross was his idea. If there was nobody, if you were the last person left on earth, God would still die for you. You know, your life, we, we're told that he sees all the days of our lives. And he loves us with an everlasting love. And so he loves us with, you know, this agape love, you know, this unconditional love. You didn't do anything ever to learn God, earn God's love. And what I started to realize when I looked at the Magi is sometimes when we learn all this stuff, and we build all this intellect into our, our faith and stuff like that. And there's times when I've seen people and they, they just talk about the interpretation of a scripture or whatever. And after a while, I remember, you know, listening to a guy and he said, he, a friend of mine, he didn't believe in Noah's Ark anymore, which is fine, you know. And then he told me the reason why. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, uh, I was watching a, uh, the Hollywood movie Noah's Ark. Uh, Noah last night and you know when the waters came down and people screamed and my God wouldn't do that and I'm like okay I can understand interpretation but you're basically chucking out the Bible because of a really bad Russell Crowe movie <laughs> you know that's not study that's not study that's you deciding that you're going to distance yourself more from what God may want you to hear because of something Hollywood made up you know which is you know, I mean, you're deciding you don't want to be, you don't want to be close uh, to God by somebody who butchered half of Les Mis, you know? It's, it, it, it's difficult. It's, so, it's, <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's true, you know? It's true. We separate, it's, it's, we separate it's ourselves out oh, from look, that. Oh, look, it's snowing outside. <laughs> um, okay, given... Given that if we come to a place where we recognize that we are beloved, yeah. that we, God loves us no matter what we've done or haven't mm -hmm. done, we can't make ourselves better or worse. Yes, like yeah. His love for us is constant and extreme. Given that that's who we all are as individuals mm, yeah. and that's who he calls us to be as a church, what, what do you think that means for, but, for what we ought to be as a church? Yeah, um thing is, we've got to be open. We've, it's got to be, church has to be a place where, literally what I said, we've got to be willing to say, hi, how are you on a Sunday morning, and have somebody actually tell us how we are. That's the simple way of saying it. You know, we, too often, we turn the place, the church, into a place where what helps is the best mask you have, you know? The church is supposed to be about vulnerability. If the, if the shepherds are given exact directions to the stable, and the, the magi have to f find their way there. If the disciples were called by Jesus in the midst of where they are, and Nicodemus has to find Jesus in, in the early hours of the morning, if the rich young ruler has to come and beg before us, what it shows us is the hierarchy of the world isn't what God's interested in. And that's not actually a thing about rich and poor. Sometimes we act like it's a thing about rich and poor, that God comes to the poor and not to the rich. That's not necessarily true. It's like Jesus comes to those who don't get, have things sorted and who are honest about not having things sorted. You know, the thing when we have uh, people say, you know, the Pharisees ask him, why are you hanging around with these people? 
You know, and Jesus says, well, the doctor, uh, the sick don't need a, uh, need a doctor. And you think, well, the Pharisees need a doctor. But the point is the Pharisees don't accept that they're sick. And so we have to be open with each other and we have to let, dwell in community in openness and vulnerability and love and caring rather than basically building a show meritocracy, you know, where, and I've seen guys who do it, who, that pursue a certain stand, uh, standing in certain church circles. They're not happy unless they're at the front of stage in a perfect dress and a perfect outfit, teaching a perfect thing in their particular way of seeing God. And I've seen friends and I've watched them, in a sense, talk less and less about who they are deep inside and more and more about the ideology they want to be around. The thing is, we're not too much, but sometimes we act like we're too much. We act like each other's too much, you know? And we need to be aware that, that we have to pour out who we are. There's a, Keith Green, the great Christian singer, he had a situation where he had an, he's doing a worship service and suddenly the Holy Spirit came down and there's a lot of big church leaders and big church people confessing their sins and dealing with stuff at the front stage. And the organizers freaked out and stopped it because they were afraid that these people would be mad with them the next day that they'd revealed all this stuff that they're getting wrong. And we have to be able to reveal who we are. We can't make it meritocracy, you know? We can't make it like some kind of hierarchy. We can't make it like a high school, you know, where there's, there's the spiritual jocks and the spiritual cheerleaders and, you know, the guys who are going to go, go on to spiritual college and play NFL ball, you know? We can't do that. We have to allow ourselves to be open, you know, and glorify in our openness, glorify in our ability to speak out what's inside of us. Uh, yeah. What do you wish somebody had told the 22-year-old you? Me? And mm -hmm. then what do you want the church to hear? What do you want people here this morning to hear? I think the thing is, because we are all beloved, you can't do anything out to make yourself more beloved. Because you are okay. Um, we need to... We need to stop telling people they're not going to be anything. That they've kind of missed their point. That, you know, you might have been in a situation where you might have dealt with addiction. Or you might have had a breakdown like I did and drop out something. You might, you know, have been through some really horrible situations. You might have been in a situation where there's been some form of abuse or something like that. And it can make you feel terrible. And people will tell you, you need to get yourself sorted. You need to get yourself right. And what they mean is you need to get your mask right and you need to hide things. We need to stop defining each other by weaknesses or strengths and stuff. You know, we need to stop telling ourselves that we're nothing because we haven't made it. You know, whatever it is, you know. And we need to stop comparing ourselves to other people. But we also need to stop making it so that other people have to compare us, themselves to us. You know, and we have to realize that a lot of the things in church, it's service and it's care and it's love and it's community. It's not like, oh, you know, my life will be great when I get myself at the front of church playing a guitar, you know, or I get myself, you know, right with who God, you know, who they want me to be rather than who God is. You don't fail in God because you 
don't have it all figured out, you know? Just because things haven't gone the way you wanted them to. You might have had a divorce, you might, have, you might be in the midst of divorces, you know? You might have had, you know, people die close to you and it's, it's really hurt at a time you didn't need it. And there's times when things happen in our life and it just feels like something's exploded. And we walk into church and nobody else seems to care, you know? They just seem to care about how nice their life is. And who you are is not too much. You know, and just because you don't fit in, the, yeah, the lie is just because you don't fit in, you're never going to amount to anything. Just because you don't have a talent that's easily used for, you know, the body of Christ doesn't mean that there isn't a talent that's usable for the body of Christ, you know. And so God defines us. God defines who you are, not the world defining who you are. And unfortunately, we don't define who we are. You know, we need to be set free from defining who we are. You know, the reason I don't have a five-year or ten-year plan is because I know that in a year, God could completely turn it on his head and tell you to go somewhere completely different, you know? The, the guy who actually evangelized most of India, a guy called William Carey, had crippling, had a sunburn problem and various other things. And he actually went to a, a missionary society, said, send me to India, and they're like, you've got to be joking. And he actually paid his way to get there. He, he, and when he died... He basically was responsible for most of the most evangelical churches in India. And so when they said, what do you want to put on your gravestone? He said, I want you to put on there that I was a plodder, that I plodded my way through. You know, and he never would have deserved anything or never appeared to deserve anything or have the talent for anything or whatever. But he went and did that because he knew that God had called him to and he knew that God defines his identity. We don't define our own identity. Um, yeah. Stephen, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being you. Thank you. Thanks for using who you are mm -hmm. and sharing mm -hmm. what you see. We love you. Thank you. I want to ask you for one more thing. This is unfair. Mm -hmm. I'm cheating. I'm springing something on you. Okay. Well, but I wonder if you would pray a prayer of blessing mm -hmm. over the church. Yeah, no. Over no, no people who are here as we yeah. wrap up. I, because we want to, um, we want to encounter God. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So would you pray yeah, uh, over the church right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Lord, uh, you know, we just thank you that, thankfully, it's not our business to be perfect you know, because you're perfect, you know, and thankfully you love us with an everlasting love and you are constantly for us, not against us, you know, all the way through the Bible it's just crazily a love letter of how you love the people you created even though we mess up every single day and so I just pray um, your mercy and your blessing upon us, that you would open our hearts and you would help us to see that in the depths of our being, that we are loved and we are known more than we are ever known on earth, and that you don't care how many times we come to you with the same mistake, that you're never going to come and, you know, we, we're never going to come to you and say, oh, I messed up this way, God, and you're going to say, that's it, you're done, you know, <laughs> 
You never say that. You never run out of your grace. Your grace is enough and keeps going. And you have made us beloved. Nothing that we are is outside of you. You are, you know, the thing that makes us who we are. And so we just pray your love and your Holy Spirit will just come into the hearts of people here and let us see where we need to open up and we need to put our masks down and we need to stop being quite as uh, closed up and be more vulnerable and stop trying to run on this spiritual rat race where we're trying to prove who we are to everyone else because the only person that we need to prove anything to is you and we don't even need to do that because you know who we are we're beloved we could never do enough to be as perfect as you are you made the way that's why you sent Jesus so Lord I just pray your mercy on us right now and that we would see you with different eyes in Jesus name Amen thank you Stephen we're going to close this morning with worship and I'm going to invite you up to participate in communion it is a it's an invitation to see Jesus Stephen prays that we would see him that we would know that we are beloved that because of how God looked at us, because of the worth that he saw in us, that he put there, he was willing and more than willing to come here to become one of us and to die on the cross. As a, as a substitute, though we had earned that, Jesus took it and he gives us life. And so when we celebrate communion, we take we take the symbols of his body and his blood and we say thank you again we say thank you I'm going to invite you up when you're ready to come and reflect on the gift that God has for us as his beloved and we'll finish this morning in worship